us be lifted higher. I pray that that we recognize the things in our life that we hold higher than your name. Father, that that is no small issue. And Father, we pray, I pray that we recognize the in the midst of your name being lifted higher, that we would see that the reason why, at least one of the reasons why that we should lift your name higher is that the work that you've done in our lives is your work. As we will talk about today, as, as we are reminded as the Israelites enter into the land that God had prepared for him, he, he, he tells them that, there will be things, there are all the glorious things that, have, that are done there. You should be reminded that they were not done at your hand. But they were done because of God's hand and because of His provision. And so, Father, let us be reminded that You are the stronger one. You're the one who has saved me. And that it is written... Father, just uh, just pray that you would use your word this morning for your for your good and for your kingdom. It's in your son's name, Amen. All right, we're in Deuteronomy chapter six this morning. Deuteronomy chapter six. Kind of taking a short break from uh, journey through the Pentateuch. Although we are in the Pentateuch, as we are going to be preaching from Deuteronomy chapter six. give you all a chance to get to Deuteronomy 6, and then we're going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to preach through the whole chapter today. And try not to go 82 minutes like we did last week. So, you know, every week I set out to preach a little shorter, and it ends up happening just the opposite. It goes a little bit longer. Just know that that's not intentional. Uh, <laughs> you know, all right, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 through 25. It says this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, O therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall 
and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all goods that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out the enemies before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Let's pray again. Father, just bless Your words this morning. Father, just move Your people one step further down the path towards your kingdom and their perseverance. Father, let us see your beauty in these words. And it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to, in light of today, we've obviously chosen to break from uh, the passage, uh, the journey through the Pentateuch, and kind of jumped ahead to Deuteronomy this week. Uh, That doesn't mean we skipped uh, Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, although that might be preferable for some of us. Um, we're going to go back and revisit those. Uh, but we are here at Deuteronomy, and I want to take today and this text to help us apply this and think about this text in light of fatherhood. To think about this in light of fatherhood. Now, this is not to the exclusion of all you ladies. There's at least two applications for you ladies. One is this text applies to you just as much as it applies to your husbands. This is not a text just written to fathers. Uh, So this has application, equal application to both of you. Uh, So first, I would encourage you ladies to begin there, even though I'm going to address the men and think about it in light of the fatherhood context and preach it in light of the fatherhood context. I want you to consider that the application belongs to you similarly as well. Second of all, 
I would encourage you, after you've begun there, how does this impact me as a lady? Then think about how can I encourage my husband in such things as well. So don't begin at the latter. Begin at the former, okay? Begin with how does this change me? And then once you've thought through that and sought sanctification as that applies, then think how can I encourage my husband in these same things. So with that said, my argument today is fathers... You have nothing more important to teach your kids except how to be God's people. Fathers, you have nothing more important than teaching your kids how to be God's people. And I would say that without exception to whether they are a follower of Jesus or not. You have nothing greater to do. Now I'm not worried that our church or that you men are thinking, well, I just want my kids to choose for themselves. They'll choose for themselves whether you want them to choose or not. I mean, so that's just a, a garbage statement anyways. They're going to choose for themselves. It's just a matter of whether or not they choose for themselves now or they choose when they're outside of your authority. They're going to choose for themselves either way. So that's not the issue that I'm worried about. My issue is that there are other things that, that are potentially crowding and consuming your time and what you think is valuable to teach your kids in place of teaching them how to be God's people. So like I said, ladies, this is just as much application to you as a mother or a hopeful future mother um, or to other kids in our, ch in our church if you do not have kids. So it applies both ways. But let's think in terms of fathers since it is Father's Day, which by the way, happy Father's Day each of you, to myself, uh, you know, uh, I'm thankful for my father and for my grandfather, grandfathers, so God is good, so let's, um, let's think about this in terms of men, okay, as men, first of all, you have no greater task than to learn how to be God's people yourself, you have no greater task than to learn how to be God's people yourself. I struggle with should that be God's person, but God has more than one person. Uh, so to be God's men, you have no greater calling, no greater task than to do that yourself. So as men, you have no greater task. As fathers, you have no greater task than to teach your kids how to be God's people. No greater task than to teach them how to be God's people. Let me give us some kind of diagnostic thoughts here, diagnostic questions. Many of us care more about our kids knowing, dot, 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 how to throw a basketball, how to shoot a basketball, how to clean their room, how to get good grades in school, or how to look like a Christian. <clears throat> and I would say look like a Christian in, like, I'm distinguishing looking like a Christian from actually being a Christian, okay? That's why I said look like a Christian. And I think you have to search your own heart and go, what is it that I express the greatest concern for when it comes to my kids? Is it about them being the people of God, or is it about this, this, or this? The reality is, many of us fathers don't teach our kids how to be God's people because we give little attention to this ourselves. Maybe we're more concerned about making money, or watching sports, or comfort, or control. Or There's various things that are that we can give ourselves to as men. 
that we can dangerously give ourselves to. And if we're giving ourselves to something other than being God's people, then we're not going to teach our kids how to be God's people. See, to model greater concern, fathers, for your own kingdom is a surefire way of guaranteeing the judgment of God upon your children. You see, here's, I think, where we kind of fall into some sort of trap, just as people in general, but from talking to us men, we kind of, we fall into this trap of, well, I want better for my kids, right? We all would agree. I, I, I want my kids to know God more than, than I know God. <clears throat> but I don't say that in the sense that I've got my fingers crossed that they're going to know God more than I know God, Right? And I think that's where many of us fall into this trap of, well, I'm just going to pray that they do better than I do, or that they know God more than I do. But the reality is, statistically, okay, the, the odds are against that, and the odds are in favor. Statistically, people do not grasp the gospel more as genera- generations progress. Instead, they worship themselves more as generations progress. The odds are not that your child is going to worship God more than you. Like, you have to fight against that odd. If you just study societies in general, the gospel is loved and adored in one generation, then it's assumed in the next generation, then it's uh, confused in the next generation, and then it's disregarded in the fourth generation, and then typically society will start back over. We're in that, like, disregarding stage. Uh, so it's not in general that we're going to flip, like, that your kids are going to love God more than you love God. You're going to have to fight for your kids to love God more. You have to fight for them just to, just to love God as much, right? So I just want us to I kind of think for a second. We can't think that way. It's not just it's going to happen and we're okay. It's not just, as a father, I can sit with my fingers crossed and go, I think my kids will love God. And, and I just need to pray really hard that that happens. Right? So for you, Father, the danger here is for us to worship God on Sunday morning and then worship ourselves throughout the week. Right? And if that's the case, fingers crossed on the hope of your kids following Christ uh, is not going to do it. Like, I wouldn't bait, bet my money on your child worshiping God when they see daddy six days a week worshiping himself. Right? And for many of us, that's going to look different ways. Okay? It's going to, for some of us, that's a job. For some of us, that's, uh, you know, a sport. For some of us, that's our agenda or our control or our power or, or whatever. It, it, it's going to look different. But we have to think, we have to consider, if we worship God just on Sundays, what's that going to say to our kids? So let me set the context for us here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
So we have God delivered his people from oppression in Exodus. God delivered his people from oppression in Exodus. He took them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the law, right? So we're just tracing some of the history here where he taught the people how to be his people. Now the people are close to taking the land that God has promised them. I wanted to make sure you had a seat, boss. <laughs> You're welcome, man. Uh, all right, so let's go back to setting the context, okay? God delivered his people from oppression and exodus. He took them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the law. This is, this is where we stopped at in the book of Exodus, right? Like, kind of talked the first part of Exodus. We're going to talk about the second part of Exodus. What we got to the end of Exodus was the delivery from Egypt, and then they're on their way now to Mount Sinai. Now, we're going to kind of jump ahead again in that context because we're skipping all the way to Deuteronomy for this morning. But at Mount Sinai, that's where God really begins to lay out the law where he teaches his people how to be his people. Now, at this point in Deuteronomy, the people are close to taking the land that God has promised them. They're about to be God's people under God's rule, now in God's place, right? If you remember from the Gospel and Kingdom series, God's people under God's rule, in God's place. Deuteronomy is intended to formalize the covenant that Israel entered into with the Lord at Mount Sinai. So it gives more formality to the covenant that God gave them at Mount Sinai, which we're going to talk about next week. It gives more explanation to the covenant. It calls God's people... To obedience. And God is teaching His people two things here, broadly speaking. Two things. One is how to be His people, and then how to preserve as His people. How to be preserved as His people, essentially. Now the purpose of Deuteronomy on a broad scope is to place emphasis on what God has already spoken concerning how to be His people. How to be in relationship with God. Like when we talk about being God's people, we're talking about how do I live in relationship with God? How do I live reflecting God? How do I live rightly with God? Now I just want to encourage us to think for just a moment to thank God that we have a God who's provided a means for us to be in relationship with God. He did not have to do that. I think we just kind of usher ourselves in and go, oh yeah, cool, this is how I be God's people, and not stop to think that he didn't have to help us be God's people. He could have said from the very beginning, right? And in this stage, no, I'm good, me, the Trinity, we're great. Which they were, right? But then he could have also just stopped it at the Jews, too. Like he didn't even have to open it to the Gentiles, right? So, like, we're like doubly blessed, <laughs> Not literally, but, well, maybe. We have been blessed tremendously. So, I want you to see this purpose of God, at this point, telling us how to be God's people. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, just very quickly here. He says this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Here we see God's people living under His 
rule, these commands, these statutes. This is what it looks like. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about at this point in the story, right? This is the very beginning of the big story of the Bible. Now this is a commandment, the statutes and the rules. The Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. This is what it means to live under God's rule. You will do these commands. You will keep these statutes. This is, this is being God's people under his rule. Then we see, continuing on in that verse, he says that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So this is God's people living under his rule, living in his place. So, so see again the, the kingdom theme going on here. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and commandments. But just see, that you may fear the Lord your God. This is the idea that, that I am, we are God's people. God's people fear God in the way that, that Moses is talking about here. This is a reverent fear. This is a, I fear God. I am God's people. So God's people fear God. God's people live in God's place. God's people live under God's rule. Just see that right there at the beginning. Deuteronomy 6.1, latter half of 6.1, and then in beginning of 6.2. I think this is the main thrust of this passage. The words that follow after this, 6.1 and 6.2, will simply describe largely what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom, what it looks like to be God's people. Now, wrapped up inside of this passage is the command that God's people must teach their kids how to be God's people. And again, certainly this has application for both moms and dads, but today I want to really kind of talk about what does it mean for dad to say, and it's really more I'm going to address dad and how this passage speaks to dad. So right here from the very beginning, as we begin working through this passage, it's just wonderful, I think, how he sets this up. Right from the very beginning, we have a foundation expressed that cannot be missed. There's a foundation to being God's people, to a father teaching his kids how to be God's people that cannot be missed. If this foundation is missed, then our obedience is simply self-worship and self-righteousness. And we'll talk, we're going to kind of unpack a little bit of that a little bit later. The first thing that we cannot miss from this passage is that teaching your kids how to be God's people must begin with your supreme love for God. With your supreme love for God. Teaching your kids how to be God's people must begin with your supreme love for God. Now, here we go. This passage is going to talk a lot about obeying God. A lot about the commandments and statutes. And we must ask this question. Why do we obey God? Or out of what motivation do we obey God? Now, we do what we desire slash love, right? We, we all do that. We all ultimately follow our inclination that which is most greatly desired that is what we do now we really only have two different people that we can love god and ourselves i mean when it comes down to like who am i going to serve i'm either serving god or i'm serving 
myself. So if my obedience, think about this with me, if, my, if in my obedience I do what I do not because I have supreme love for God, then I think that means that I obey or I do what I do because I have supreme love for myself, for my agenda, for my plans, for my good, so on and so forth, rather than supreme love for God. So now my obedience is not for the glory of God, but for the glory of self. My obedience is now meant to serve me instead of God. Now I'll just challenge you to think through that. I mean, that's not, I mean, this passage isn't teaching all the ins and outs of that, but certainly something that I think we have to address when we're talking about supreme love for God. He certainly demands it here. And I think we have to think, what does the, the supreme love demanded from God, what does that, how does that play into what is spoken most about in this passage, and that is keeping the commandments and the statutes of God, and then teaching those to your kids. Now I think, as we think about obedience, like, obedience that's not serving God, that's not out of supreme love for God. Some of this, now it might serve different purposes. So if I'm, because I, I don't want us to pigeonhole the idea that I'm going to serve God for my own good and it has to look this way. For some of us, we serve God, we have, we have obedient lives because of fear of man, right? So that's still worship of self, it's because I fear what other people think about me. So I'm going to look like a Christian. For some of us, we have obedient lives because it earns us, we think rather, it earns us favor with God. For some of us, we have obedient lives because it feeds our pride or self-righteousness. So it's not out of supreme love for God that then I obey, but it's out of supreme love for myself that I obey. See the difference? But if my obedience is out of supreme love for God, then my obedience will be worship of God. But God commands the Israelites, what's interesting, here in verse 4, He commands the Israelites to do something that we now know cannot be done. Now, I want us to consider that as we read this next verse. He says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I want you to consider this. I think, largely, the Old Testament is set up and, and the story unfolds in such a way to show us that God's people, apart from God's work, cannot do verse 4. I mean, we don't have a success story of verse 4. Like we, don't see God, like, we don't see God's people fulfilling that verse, ever. Until something happens in man's heart. Something happens that God does. So when I say ever, let me qualify that one step further. We don't see man ever doing that apart from God's doing that in them. It's similar to what we see with Jesus and Nicodemus, right? 
Jesus says, you must be born again. He tells him to do something that he cannot do himself. You must love God supremely. He's saying this. Moses is saying this. You must love God supremely from a state in which you cannot possibly do so apart from the work of God. Verse 4 with me again. Hear, O Israel. And the, the idea of hear is, is, is listen, obey, do this. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, let's explain. Let's talk through this verse a little bit. Verse 4 provides the foundation for the command. Verse 4 provides the foundation for the beginning of verse 4, provides the foundation for the command. When you think of it at the very beginning, it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is crucial that we not miss this. And I'm going to spend, majority of the time, we're going to spend like focusing right here on this verse because this sets the stage for the rest of chapter 6 if we're going to understand it rightly, particularly from a New Testament perspective. So verse 4, when he says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, this is not to the contrary of a Trinitarian view of God. He's not saying that God is not three persons, that God is not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's not the point, what Moses is stating here. The point is that God is so unique in His Godness that the only thing that makes sense is for mankind to do what Moses is going to command them to do in the following words. That's what's being said here. The Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. He is so unique in His Godhood that the only thing that makes sense is that you would love Him with everything that you have. This is why idolatry is so horrendous. We are proclaiming in idolatry, we're proclaiming that something else is more unique in its divinity, is more unique in its, in its beauty than God is. The idol is more alone in its existence than God. Those are the things that get worshipped in our lives, is those things we think are so unique that nothing else deserves my attention except for this issue, this situation, this object, this event. I found myself this past week, even as of this morning, having to repent for something in my life that I thought to be more worthy of God, more worthy of worship than God, right? You know, it can be an event, it can be a situation, it can be a person. I mean, idolatry takes obviously different forms. We've talked about this a lot as a church. But what you're saying as your heart begins to grab all of its attention and give it all to this thing other than God, you are saying that that thing is so unique, is so important, is so glorious that it deserves everything that I have, my mind, my heart, my soul, my strength, my time, my resources. It deserves it all. And over here is God, the creator of the universe, who stands alone in his uniqueness, that nothing else 
begins to compare to his uniqueness. He is one. He stands alone. The motivation for loving God is the fact that God is alone in his existence. He does not think like the rest of the world. He does not lack unity like the rest of the world. He does not grow tired. He does not grow weak. There is nothing and no one else like God. So because of his uniqueness, the only thing that makes sense is supremely loving God. It's the only thing that makes sense. I mean, I, mean, and that's, I mean, that's the height of our stupidity and foolishness that we would begin to even consider worshiping something else other than God. We do it all the time, day in, day out, myself included. Now, love here, I mean, I mean love here is not really about emotions, but more about obedience. Now, this, uh, hear me carefully. I don't think this excludes, I don't think this verse excludes emotions, but the idea here is that because of who God is, He alone can demand and does demand unqualified obedience. So now, not only does the only thing that makes sense is that we would supremely love Him expressed in obedience, but that God, because of His uniqueness, can demand and does demand unqualified obedience. Now, what I mean by unqualified that there is no limit to the obedience demanded. There's no qualification for the obedience. It is total obedience, and He can tell us to obey anything that He wants to, and it is expected of us. Now, He talks about, in this, in this verse, the depth and breadth of this obedience is described as encompassing the heart, soul, and the strength of God's people. The heart, the soul, the strength of God's people. Now, if you did renovate us this past week, you should have thought through what the heart, what the soul, what the strength is. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you for the, for the sake of the sermon today. Heart, meaning the seat of the intellect, right? The heart at this point, meaning the seat of the intellect. Soul, the invisible part of the person or the will, the inclination, tied very closely to the affections. And strength, the physical side with all its functions and capacities. The physical side, the doing. Physical ability. So the heart, at this point, I believe from the context, we're talking about the seed of the intellect, the soul, the invisible part, of the person or the will, the strength, the physical side. Just break this down for just a second with me. When we think of loving God supremely, what this means is that God has become the center of our life, our being. Our thoughts are centered around God. Our will is determined by God. And our strength is used for God. We think about God-centered, right? Intellect, heart, men. I mean, just, 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 just a practical thought here for a second. It certainly applies to the context here. You must be reading the Bible at the very least and most foundationally. If you're not studying the Word of God, then you're not loving God with your mind, right? God has revealed Himself to us in the Word. 
At the very least, the thing that we should be doing if we are to love God with our intellect is to be studying Him with our intellect. To know Him. Like at the very least, and I, and I think primarily and foundationally, but at the very least. Now let's talk about our will and soul, right? Men, you must be willfully and joyfully submitting your will to the Father's. Again, very foundational here. The question, do you constantly find yourself planning according to your agenda or do you defer it to God? Do you, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to look this way and, oh God, by the way, will you bless my plan? Right? Or is your will daily being sacrificed and submitted to God? I think one of the practical ways that God has given us to work that out practically in submitting our will is submitting our will to His body, the local body, and to involve the body in discovering that will for our lives and how does it fit in together. Now, there's no clear indication of Scripture that, that that means that every little piece and part of my life I need to make public so that the body can vote on it, right? I don't think that's what... I don't think that's, that's not what I'm intending to say. What I'm saying is that God has given us practically the opportunity to work out submission of our will with the body. We move this, we, we practice this, we live this out practically. Now, might, physic, you know, think about the physical side of us men. And, and ladies, too, again, this applies to, to all of us. Are you using your strength for the kingdom? We're using it for your kingdom. Like, like so physically, when we use our physical side of our bodies, like at our job, for a lot of us men, we, we, we work all week. Now, do you see that that job is an opportunity to further God's kingdom or is an opportunity to build a bigger house, a better house, buy new appliances, have another car, put my kids in school? Like, what, what's the purpose of that job? Is it to subdue the earth for God's kingdom? Or is it to, to bring home a paycheck to subdue your kingdom? Like, what is, what's going on here? Am I loving God? Am I being obedient? Am I using all of my might, all of my, my soul, all of my mind? Am I using all of these things to worship God? Now, men, understand that you're not loving your kids if you're not first supremely loving God. I mean, you're loving your kids by your definition, which would be an anti-love compared in contrast to God's love for your kids. So my supremely loving God, that's the only way I can supremely love my kids. Fathers, you have nothing of value to give your kids if you're not giving them God and giving them from God's wellspring. Anything that you give your children apart from God is something that the world can give your children. And you're called to be set apart. Your kids are called to be set apart. How are we set apart even in the things that we do that are similar to the world, right? There's lots of things. I mean, I teach my kids how to eat without getting food all over the place. Well, the world's going to teach your kids how to, right, right? At the very least, we do it unto God as worship of God, out of supreme love for God. Have you ever thought about like, 
So I want my kids to pick up their toys, right? Like in our house, we, we try to exercise this rule of like one tub of toys. You play with those. When you're done, you put those back up. Why? Just so mommy and daddy can have a cleaner house? Well, that's part of it. I'm not going to lie. I do like having a clean house. But that's teaching them orderliness. That's teaching them responsibility. That's teaching them to care and exercise dominion over their kingdom. Why? Because if they're to be God's people, then they are to do such things. It is not part of God's kingdom to throw food across the table and to harm your brother or sister. That's not okay. That is not being God's people. But, but we have to think that way. This is how we're set apart from the world. We don't do things just because that seems like the best thing to do. We do things because it's worship to God. I know that requires some of us to think a little more deeply about, right, about why my two-year-old shouldn't throw food instead of I just don't want to clean up off the floor. Uh, but that's good, right? I'm just, just encouraging us to, to think more deeply about these things. So God, God requires and God deserves a supreme love for him. It's not a foreign concept to us. I know that. Let's remind it, be reminded. So then, the next thing we see, and we're going to move much more quickly through the rest of this passage. But loving God supremely leads to living for God obediently. Loving God supremely leads to, and essentially is synonymous with, living for God obediently. Let's read 5 through 9. As soon as you get done writing obediently. I've been instructed that when the passage comes after the point, to give you all plenty of time to write the word in. And for those of you who are writing the entire sentence, I'll give you a few extra moments. <laughs> loving God, so I'll just, I'll just say it like 15 times, okay? Loving God supremely leads to living for God obediently. Verse, so in the passage, the flow here, right? Supreme love. Now we're getting to further obedience. Verse 5 through 9. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So... Let's think about this again in light of fathers. Just run right through these with me. I would encourage you to write this part down. Fathers, know, so fathers, comma, know all his commands. Fathers, know all his commands. I'm not making a declarative statement that fathers indeed know all of God's commands. I'm making the statement that God, that God's Fathers should know all his commands. So, fathers, the imperative statement is, fathers, know all his commands. You go, oh my goodness, that's a lot. It is a lot. Moses is teaching the people the commands of God. It's what we're in the midst of. The point here is implied, but I think it's obvious. Like, Moses doesn't say literally, like explicitly in the text, fathers, you need to know all of God's commands. He's implying that, though. 
If you're to teach your kids the commands of God, then you need to know the commands of God. And I would encourage us fathers to move on beyond teaching your kids Sunday school stories because that's where your knowledge stopped. Fathers, know all His commands. You have to if you're going to teach your kids. So it's implied. Know His commands. Learn His commands. Study His commands. Father, fathers, what, what do we have to teach our kids if not the Word of God? How to throw baseball, how to cut the grass? Teach our daughters how to drink tea? Like, I mean, what do we have to teach our kids? How to throw that one in for, for all the daughters? I mean, I'm thinking boys, right? And I went, oh, Rusty, girl, daughter. I guess you could teach them how to cut the grass, throw a baseball, softball maybe. <coughs> Like, what do we have to teach them? Now, here's, now, I, I, I hate to state the obvious, but fathers, you had to know something in order to teach anything. You had to know it to teach it. And particularly if you're going to teach it in such a way that a four-year-old could understand it or a 12-year-old could understand it, you're going to have to know it pretty well. That's why I'm teaching my kids how to say, like, propitiation, Right? They have no clue what it means. They will one of these days. <laughs> now, fathers, this is just, again, I'm just going to press in a little bit further. If you know more about your job than you do the Word of God, what does that say about your supreme love? If you know more about some sports teams than you do the Word of God, what does that say about your supreme love? I mean, it could be a name it, right? What does that say? What does that say to your kids? If you're to teach your kids how to be God's people, does having an uh, idolatrous relationship with a job or a sports team, is that teaching your kids how to be God's people? No, you're teaching them how to be that sports team's people or to be a paychecks people, right? Uh, fathers, know all his commands. Next one, fathers, love all his commands. Again, fathers, Comma, love all his commands. Now, when I say this love, I am, I am now moving beyond the seat of the intellect as the Old Testament understands love and speaking more on the affectionate side. Having an affection for the commands of God. Because, see, you can know the commands of God, but if you don't have an affection for the commands of God, then you will not do it. If your inclination is not, I desire the commands of God above my commands, then you will always default to my commands, not God's commands. Right? Freedom is not the ability to choose A or B. Freedom is that you always choose what you most greatly desire. You will always choose what fits the top of your desire list. You'll always choose what your greatest desire is. So certainly there is an affectionate component that we cannot overlook. Many of us men, here, many of us men are cold towards God and His Word. And I, what I, here's where I gotta be careful. Many of us, like when we look at God's Word, it's not, it's not for a lot of us men. It's not we look at God's Word and go, "Oh, I hate that." Like cold in the sense of like, I despise that or I don't like that. 
but cold in the sense of maybe it's just some sort of knowledge, just some sort of intellectual knowledge to have at best. Or, or maybe it's like, oh, yeah, that's just God's word. That's cool, you know? You know, our habits of studying probably reveal how much we love God's word, right? So if you look back over the past few weeks, how much have I studied God's word? That probably reveals my affections for God's word, for my affections for his commands. Do I love it or do I not? Maybe I love sleep more than I love this. Maybe I, you know, what is the, make sense? So affections. Men, though I will say this, you will certainly not teach your kids the commands of God if you do not love the commands of God. The commands that you do teach your kids, apart from loving the commands of God, are simply commands that reflect your love for yourself. Right? Let me repeat that again. The commands that you teach your kids to do, apart from loving the commands of God, are simply commands that reflect your love for yourself. So if I teach my kids obedience to authority, apart from loving this command as a command of God, I'm simply displaying my love for myself, not for my God. But why else would I want them to obey authority? So that they supremely love God? I don't supremely love God. So if I don't supremely love God, then why do I want my kids to obey? Probably because it makes me feel good. It, it makes my life more convenient. It makes them look more like a Christian. I think they're earning favor with God. Why am I? Because if I don't want my kids to do something out of love for God, the only alternative is love for self. Fathers, you must love the commands of God if you're going to teach your kids to love them. He says these things should be written on your heart, that you should love these things. And, and we know from a broader context of Scripture that this includes our affection, certainly. Next one. So fathers, know all of His commands. Fathers, love all of His commands. Fathers, obey all His commands. Again, not a declarative statement about fathers, but an imperative statement for fathers to do. Obey all His commands. Let me remind us, ladies, same thing for, I was going to say for us, for you. Obey all His commands. Love all His commands. Know all His commands. Understand that I have listed these also in a specific order, right? You can't love something you don't know. You can't obey something that you don't know and love. So next, obey all His commands. Fathers, if you live by picking and choosing which commands to obey, you're simply elevating yourself to God's status, right? If I get to choose, then that elevates me in authority above the text, above God. You don't, we don't get to pick and choose. And in the process, you're teaching your kids to do the same thing. It's just right now they're not smart enough to pick up on it. That as they get to know the Bible and they get to see Daddy and Mommy picking and choosing what they do and what they don't do, They'll pick up on that. Now, now clearly, there's, we don't know everything in Scripture, so we're going to discover things as we grow, right? And then it's a matter of how does our heart respond. Does it respond in repentance and sanctification, or does it respond in hardness and, no, I don't want to do that? And that's, that's, the latter is the problem. But certainly, I, I long for my kids someday. It's going to be hard for my pride, but I long for my kids to come to me and say, Hey, Daddy, you're not doing that. The Bible says it right here, and you're not doing that. I long for that day. I want that. I want my kids to know God's Word well enough to be able to do that. So fathers, I just picked a, a command in Scripture that it's likely that you ignore. Because even myself, I ignore often as well. Ephesians 5, 25-27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself a splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So he's comparing husband's love for their wives to Christ's love for the bride. Now husbands, I'm just going to ask a very simple question here. How many of us, don't answer this out loud, wash our wives with the word of God? How many of us do that? Just, just reflect for just a moment. I'm going to press it a little bit harder, men, all right? How many of us even know the word well enough to lead our wives with it? You can all throw stones later, okay? It's for me too, right? The challenge is always knowing the word so I can lead my wife with the word, right? Knowing the word so I can lead her with it, so I can wash her with the word. Why? Why? So she might be presented without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, right? So men, this is a, this is a command that we don't get to choose not to do. So you've heard the command, you've seen the command, now you go, ah, am I doing that? No, I need to do it. We talk about how do we do that in another conversation. Men, if I'm honest, if I just be brutally honest at this point, many of us men are being led by our wives and we don't even realize it. Just, just as pastor, honest conversation with you, I have a, a good number of conversations with wives trying to help their husbands, trying to help them lead. How, and man, it just breaks my heart, man. I, I just, I hate that. I hate it. I love it that the fact that she loves you. I hate it that I have to have that conversation. How do I help them lead? How do I help their husbands catch up or move beyond where they're at spiritually? You know, I said, I, earlier I said, you know, I desire that my kids would, would know God more than me, and I do. I certainly believe that. But there's a good part and a good thought, I, th I believe, and a good desire in me that I hope that they don't. In the sense that it's not because I stopped growing, but I, but I pray that, that I, like, push into God's Word and push into knowing Him, and, and I'm able to continue leading my kids until the day that I die. Men, like, we need to wash our wives with the Word, which means we need to know it, and if we're going to teach our kids to obey all His commands, then we can't pick and choose what we obey. Now, man, I hope you know I love you, Okay? Um, but more importantly, God loves you, and He wants you to lead your wives, okay? Now, He's going to, just as a quick caveat, it's His work. He's the one that's going to equip you. It's not, let's beef up our self-righteousness and pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's beef up our repentance and beef up our dependence, right? So just as a quick, I want to make sure that's part of that statement before we move on. Next, fathers. Teach all his commands, especially to your children. So we have 
Know all of His commands. Love all His commands. Obey all His commands. Teach all His commands, especially to your children. I say especially because that's what we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Fathers, you will not teach your kids the commands of God until you know, love, and obey them yourselves. Many of us don't love the commands of God. We love the law or the commands that we've created. Right? So let's just draw a distinction here. We don't cheat on our wives because we know, because this is maybe how we stay right with God. Or we don't cuss because that makes me look like a Christian. It's not because these are necessarily the commands of God. You see, we don't teach our kids the commands of God because we simply follow the commands that fulfill our own desires. So just, fathers, you need to be thinking through this. Do I want my kids to do X, Y, Z because it's my command or because my command is a command of God's? Right? So is it because I've created law for my kids or it's because I'm teaching my kids the law of God? Right? Men, so you submit yourself to the commands of God by knowing and obeying and then letting that ooze from your life. Then you will teach your kids. you got to know it, love it, ooze it, all right? For lack of a good theological term there. Know it, love it, ooze it, all right? That's how you will teach your kids. Last couple comments on that. Fathers, this is not a task that you can delegate to your wives. Okay? And it's not a task you can delegate to the church. Now, both of them play a huge part in that. Right? Both of those play a huge part in that. But you can't delegate this one out. You can't contract this part of, you know. Okay. Fathers, last thing, part of that, part of, part of this Living for God obediently is this, and I hope this is encouraging to you, fathers. Again, another imperative statement. Remember that it is God's work. Remember that it is God's work. Now, I know the temptation, again, I'm just going to say it again, is to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do better. Again, instead... Instead of increasing self-righteousness, which pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps would lead to, let's increase repentance and dependence. Repent and trust that it's God's work. Trust in Him. Verse 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's not saying, just make sure you pray before you eat. He's saying a whole lot more than that. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of your peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. Wow. Right? As the work going on in your heart and in your life, men and ladies, the work you are teaching 
your kids is simply a work of God. And we cannot forget that. When I look at my kids, I see, you know, different stages of development, different levels of obedience. And, you know, so as I think with my son Chapman, not perfect, often sinful, often disobedient. But when I look at even the level of obedience that has been reached in his life, I have to remember that that is a work of God. Because given to ourselves, we are not prone to obedience, we're prone to disobedience, right? Now certainly, it's God working through me, working through my wife, through grandparents, through God's church and you guys to bring about obedience in my children. But that's God's work, right? That's God's work. It's God's work in his heart, which is the part of I cannot touch, right? I mean, I can help detour him with spankings and this, that, or the other, but, but only God can change his heart. Only God can make him desire to obey mommy and daddy, right? So as you are faithful to his commands, that's largely a display of God's faithfulness in your life. He warns them in here not to go after other gods. Okay, let's think about this for a second. He warns them, as you're thinking about these things that you have that you did not do yourself, that it was God's work, do not go after other gods. It's quite interesting that he would say, why, why would he say those two things together? Don't, like, you didn't do these things. God did them. So don't go after other gods. What, what's he doing? Clearly he's warning them not to go after other gods. But Moses is commanding the people to not forget that the provision and the mighty acts done in their lives was from the one true God. Think about this. What's going on here is if the people were to worship other gods, then the mighty works done in their lives would be attributed to those other gods. Again, the Lord your God is one. He is the one doing this. He alone is unique. He is the one that stands out in all of history. He is the one that has provided all these things. He is the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He is the one because of these things and because of simply who he is, which is why he's done these things. He alone deserves worship. And when you worship other gods, you're simply saying, guys, he's not done these things. That which I am worshiping, that's worthy of my worship. So fathers, I wonder if I asked your kids what God, lowercase g, what God gets credit for the mighty works of God in your life, what would they say? What would they say? The Air Force? Gamber Family Dental? Chipotle, Lion, the police department, Area Electric. Would your kids say that that God gets credit for the mighty works in your life? And men, just for sake of stones later, I don't know that to be true in your lives. I just want you to think about it that way, okay? What would they say gets the credit for the mighty works of God in your guys' lives as a family? What? What is it?
Or they say gymnastics, baseball, soccer, football, friends. The projects around your house. Are those the things that get the worship of your heart? And your kids see that. Would they say that this has been the almighty provision, the almighty provider for our family? Or would they say, my daddy worships God. He does work hard. But I know that God provides for us through my daddy's work. So dads, do you worship these things? When you do, you are saying to God, he is not worthy of your worship. And would your children see them as a God who has provided for you? Instead, it is God's work in your life. Now let your worship, make sure your worship reflects that. So, we've talked about supreme love for God. It must be first. And this is something that only God can give to us, right? It's something only God can change us. We need His work of Regeneration. We need Him to change our hearts. From this heart of love for God comes obedience to God. Now we see that supreme love for God births obedience to God, and together love and obedience ensure perseverance. This is the last phrase. Supreme love for God births obedience to God, and together love and obedience ensure perseverance. Supreme love for God, verse obedience to God, and together love and obedience ensure perseverance. Again, that's understanding that the love and obedience is the work of God. So it's ultimately God that's ensuring our perseverance, right? Ultimately, it's God. But that's expressed in love and obedience. Let me ask a question. What good... Is love for God or redemption if it cannot be sustained, if it cannot be persevered, right? What good is your redemption if it can be lost tomorrow? But we still see that perseverance, there's still work that goes on in perseverance. We just understand that to be ultimately God's work. So then the work of God is no better than the work of some other self-help, make-me-happy, man-made concoction if it cannot be sustained, if it cannot be persevered. So why do we continue in faith and obedience? Fathers, why must you teach your kids to continue in faith and obedience? Let's think about this thing for just a few moments and we'll be done. First of all, we should teach them these things that it may go well with you that it may go well with you, that it may go well with your kids, that it's for their good. See, a lot of us think of the commands of God as just simply the rules that I've got to check, and if I do that, then I'll be good with God. No, like, literally, there is good for us physically, emotionally, materially, intellectually. It's good for us. Verse 3, Hear, therefore, Israel, be careful to do them, Watch them, the commandments, the statutes, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Think about that. That it may go well with you. That you would be God's people in God's place and He would provide for you. 
He would care for you. That you would go without need. Right? Verse 18 through 19. And you, shall, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. It is good for us to obey God's commands. You know, when we, when we speak to our kids and teaching them to, to obey mommy and daddy, look, this is for your good. This is for your good. This is, I said to Jeff the other day, that it may go well with you. <laughs> you know, huh? You know? But that this may go well with you, son. That your life would be prosperous. That your days would be long. That your needs would be met. Why? Like, just so that you don't go to bed hungry? You need to eat your dinner? No, I'm teaching you that just like if you obey me now, your need of food later will not be there, right? right? That teaches us that obedience to God ultimately leads to our needs being met. Right? It is for our good. Chapman, this is for your good. So it's, so why do we just that it may go well with you? Secondly, for pers- preservation, preservation, sorry, for preservation. Verse 20 through 24. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord our God has commanded you? Now, don't you all like long for your sons to come to you and say, Dad, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord our God has commanded you? Right? That's what I'm looking for. Right? <laughs> Listen. Here's a father who knows the commands of God. Right? It's a father who knows what God. He says this. And fathers, you shall say to your son. And mothers, you shall say to your son. And of course, your daughters. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. What does he say? We were helpless. We could do nothing. And the Lord, not us, not our own doing, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. It wasn't because of our righteousness. It was because of God's righteousness. It wasn't because of our mercy. It was because of God's mercy. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, right? How mighty was this hand? It was so mighty that it overcame the hardened heart of Pharaoh, right? It was so mighty that it took the killing of the firstborn sons. It's so mighty that it took the washing of the entire army of Pharaoh's people away in the middle of the Red Sea. That's how mighty it was. Now, how mighty is it? How can I proclaim how mighty it was to my kids? It depends on how well I know God's commands, how well I know God's words, God's character as it's revealed in His Word. For many of us, if our kids came up to us and said, Daddy, how mighty is God? We'd go, well, you know, there's that one Sunday school story that I heard. Guys, that's not a mighty God that commands the worship of your kids. Know God in such a way that that it brings about worship in your kids' lives. He's given himself plenty of description, right? Plenty of description. And the Lord showed signs. Guys, again, this is the father 
teaching his son. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our father. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Like, like I hope I can describe God to my son someday when he asks me like that. This was God. He did this. He did this. He is great. He's worthy of worship because he is marvelous, because he has cared for us, his people. He's cared for your mom and dad. He has worked us through trials. He has refined our affections. He has, he has done all these marvelous works, and he has preserved us to this day, my son. Fathers, paint that picture for your, for your kids. But you've got to know the picture to paint the picture. Think of your favorite artists, right? Monet, Van Gogh. Like think of these beautiful artists, right? Like, that's the kind of picture we have of God and His Word. But many of us, it's, it's still like, you know, we don't know our way around a piece of paper and we can't, we can't, can't draw, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, paint them a picture. As we learn the commands of God and obey them by faith in our, in our walk, like faith, I'm sorry, as we learn the commands of God and obey them by faith, our walk with the Lord is preserved. And that's what he's saying here. The people of God followed God and His leading, and they were preserved to this day. As we teach our kids the commands of God and teach them to obey by faith, then we are helping in the perseverance of their walk with the Lord. Like, like parents, the goal shouldn't just be for my kid to, to accept Jesus into their heart. Our goal is that they would be found saved on the day that Christ returns or the day that they die. That should be our goal. Now, the way we interact with our kids is going to look different when they get to be 30 years old or 20 years old or 5 years old, but... That should be our goal. Like, let's have a bigger goal. So for preservation, lastly, for it will be righteousness for us. Why do we teach them, our kids, how to be God's people? Why do we, as fathers and mothers, should desire to be God's people? For it will be righteousness for us. Hmm. And there's so much to dance around here, right? Like, Self-righteousness and legalism and doing it from great. How, how, how do I think through these things? I mean, we don't have much time to dive into all of that, but look at verse 25, okay? And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Again, now, I, I want to make sure you understand that verse 25 is connected to verse 24. And what just happened in verse 24 and verse, I'm sorry, 20 through 24 is 
the son asks the father, and the father says, this is the picture of God. And at the close of that, he says to his son, or Moses commands fathers to say to their sons, that this will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Remember, God is commanding them and us to do something that we ultimately cannot do apart from a work of God. If we are careful to obey His commands, it will be righteousness for us. Why? Why? Because as we obey God's commands, think this with me, as we obey God's commands, as God's commands, that's key. So we're not just living as righteous people, but as we obey God's commands, as God's commands, like we're thinking of them and trusting in them as God's commands, and not our commands. We are placing our faith in God. What, why? How? How? Because I'm believing that God is who He said He is, and God will do as He said He will do. So as I trust in the commands of God, as I live out the commands of God, as God's commands, not just as to be a good Christian, but as the commands of God, I'm trusting in who He is and who He said He was and He will do as He said He will do. We are believing that God is worthy of worship. Because if He's worthy of my obedience, He's worthy of my worship, it is grace through faith that this righteousness that is ours. Now fathers, as you, as you teach your kids obedience, it must come from a heart that loves God, that trusts God, that has faith in God. You must teach your kids that you obey God because you have faith in Jesus. Don't just assume that your kids are going to pick up on that. I mean, I think they will maybe eventually, but, but don't just, don't leave it up for hopefulness. Tell them, Daddy obeys the commands of God because he trusts the commands of God. Because he trusts God. And his commands, therefore, are trustworthy. Now, the only way we are able to love God with all of our heart it's through an obedient, redeemed heart that has faith in the work of Jesus where we get this new heart from God. So fathers, will you today place your faith in the work of Jesus that you might have a heart that supremely loves God? Right, fathers? You place your faith in the work of Christ that you might have a heart that supremely loves God, shows its fruit in obedience, and enables you to teach your children how to be God's people. My last encouragement to you fathers is this. Be God's people and teach your kids to be God's people. I want to pray for us. We'll worship in song, and after that we'll be dismissed. Father. Heavenly Father, you're the perfect Father. But Father, you have given us fathers and you've given us to be fathers on this earth, whether in a biological sense, in an adoption sense, or a spiritual sense in the body. You've given us all, if we were men, this opportunity to be fathers. And what is that opportunity? It's the opportunity to reflect you as our Heavenly Father. The opportunity to lead as you lead as our Heavenly Father. To care as you care as our Heavenly Father. 
And so, Father, I pray that our fathering on this earth would not just be, oh, this is the best way that I can do, but, but is my fathering reflective of your fathering? Father, our fathers were not the standard. Our grandfathers were not the standard. Other fathers around us are not the standard. Father, you are the standard. And what's marvelous about that is you who set the standard, you are the one who does the work in us. And so, Father, I pray that in the next few moments that we as fathers would just simply submit our lives to you, that we just submit our wills and our affections and our, and our love and our knowledge and our intellect and our, our plans and our agendas, and, and we just submit all that to you and say, Father, here I am, just, just do it in me, do a work in me. Please, I beg you. Father, oh, what marvelous things come from a people who says, you're my God, you're worthy of my worship, and here I am, do as you please. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand? Worship, please.